Welcome to the June episode of the Bellingham Veg Fest. This is Tamara, and here's Selena. Hi, everyone. We are super excited this month. One subject that comes up quite often in the vegan community is voting with your dollars. You hear that all the time, right? right? We vote with our dollars. There's a con- lot of conversation around if as vegans we purchase vegan products, that will show that there's a demand for these products and hopefully will result in less animal being killed because that's the goal for us right you know uh, for vegans we're vegan for the animals that's right. the goal right right i think another term for that is political consumerism yeah so consumerism right, right? right. um i see all articles all the time being shared on facebook you know veganism is winning <laughs> because a restaurant chain added another vegan burger sure so um to their menu but does that mean that we're getting closer to a vegan world and right. Um, what, what about subsidies and bailouts? What roles do they play? Um, today we have Laura Reese from Agriculture Fairness Alliance, and she's going to explain some of this. And I imagine some of it is going to bum you out at first, right? Laura, <laughs> it's going to bum us out at first, right? Maybe. Yeah, maybe, but there's hope. Yes. <laughs> there's a path. Absolutely. Um, <laughs> there, but Laura has a plan and, um, I, I know Tamara and I are on the same page with this and it gives us so much hope. And that's one of the reasons why we wanted Laura here. So welcome, Laura. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. I'm really happy to talk with you both. We we've met what a couple years ago now, and I'm just thrilled to know both of you. And at the time there was no Bellingham Veg Fest and there was no AFA. Nope. Yep. We've inspired each other. And Laura, you're local. You're you're a Whatcom County native, right? Yeah, I'm a Seahome graduate. Sweet. Wow. Oh, I didn't know. And I went to I went to Fairhaven Middle School as well. I'm a Grizzly. That's awesome. Awesome. Well, Laura, we always like to start each show with asking about your vegan story. Yeah. So uh I'm coming up on four years vegan in uh September, August-ish. I didn't mark the day. It was sort of a, a month long going through the process and going, oh my gosh, at the end of this, I know I'm going to be vegan, but I'm not ready to say that yet, right? Right. It was, I, I did an elimination diet and through that elimination diet, which happened to be animal free for the most part, um, my whole family did it with me and we were kind of like, you know what, if we don't need to eat animals, why would we eat animals? And um, then we watched things like um, Carnage Swallowing the Past, which is a comedy, but it's pretty illuminating and other documentaries. And I got to say, learning about the dairy industry, I was never a big, I always thought it was weird to drink milk. I remember sitting at the table when I was, I don't know, eight, nine years old. And my dad wouldn't let me leave the table unless I drank my whole freaking pint of milk, really. And I was just like, why, why would I drink a cow's milk? Like I'm weaned, right? Mm, I just wow. remember thinking this, right? but of course I ate cheese. I'm thinking that it was right. no big deal and yogurt, <laughs> but like those were more removed. Right. But then I learned about the, the, the dairy industry and, you know, all of animal ag and it was horrifying and then environmentally destructive and really not the kinds of foods that humans should be eating at every meal. It's pretty clear. So yeah, we just went, went vegan that way. The first day that I actually kind of called myself vegan was when I had been accidentally 
served dairy in a Indian dish at a restaurant after we'd been really clear about not wanting dairy. And I came to find out that we'd been served dairy and I was just irate for like hours on end and just ruminating and just going in my head about what I wanted to say to that jerk who served me dairy. Right. Like, how dare you make me take part in this? Right. Wow. And then I just kind of looked at myself in the mirror that night while I was brushing my teeth. And I'm like, I guess you're a freaking vegan now. <laughs> I well, never if, called them. I didn't. I didn't. Show you never did. Worry. I was going to ask. <laughs> <laughs> so four years ago, you started your vegan journey. And now here you are. You started Animal, um, excuse me, Agricultural Fairness Alliance. Where? How did you get there? What? Where was the bridge there? About a month after going vegan, you know, you do that first and in, that initial period of figuring out what to substitute things. And then I couldn't stop myself reading about subsidies. And uh, like I would go to the USDA website to see, OK, I hear about these subsidies, what's actually going on. And I started learning a lot more about it. And then I read Meatonomics, for example, from David Simon. And that was illuminating. And. I just thought, well, at first I start, I went into street activism, which is how we all met mm -hmm. in Seattle, actually, at some, at a workshop. And I thought that was important to do pretty right, much right out of the gate. Cause I thought, you know, I was, I was ignorant to all this stuff, even though it was right in front of my face the whole time. And in fact, in 2008, I did a month going vegan with my daughter. Because she had read the book Skinny Bitch in the Kitchen, or no, Skinny Bitch, whatever. Yeah. And I didn't even, it's weird. I didn't even bother to go, oh, yeah, why did you want to do this? Like, let me read the book. I was like, oh, that sounds like a fun challenge. And we did it for a month and then we went right back. Like, I didn't even get curious about it. It's really weird. So I just thought, well, we're we're kind of taught that we need to eat animals and we're kind of conditioned to eat them at almost every meal and people need to know that that's not the case. So I started with street activism like you, and then I started to read about the subsidies and I thought, you know what, I need to broaden. I need to, to focus on fixing the system. Just, we definitely need to convince individual people to uh, break out of the ideology of carnism. But at the same time, we need to fix the system so that it's not working against us. Right. Uh, so that exactly that, that our political consumerism or right. when we're voting with our dollars, right. uh, it's, it's definitely being felt by the plant-based food companies. They feel it when we buy their product. Right. But our market signals are being muted to the the agribusinesses that really run the animal ag sector. Right. Uh, so they get paid no matter what. If it's not coming from our wallets at the grocery checkout, it's coming from our taxes through the USDA, through subsidies and bailouts. That's probably one of the most frustrating things, I think, for me as a vegan, you know, aside from, no, not even aside from, more so than family members that won't go vegan or hassle you, blah, 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 you know, all, yada, yada. But um right that I'm boycotting something and they're still getting my money. It's right. infuriating that I'm, you know, like I do not want to support agribusiness, animal agribusiness at all. And they are still getting my tax dollars and it's uh, so upsetting. And, it, and yeah. it seems like no matter how you vote, because it's on both sides right. of the aisle that there, that these things happen. <laughs> I mean, it's right. I mean, absolutely. You, you vote for one, you think, well, maybe they're more progressive. No, I mean, 
maybe they're a little closer, but we're so still so far away, right. so far away. You mentioned subsidies and bailouts. Could you explain the difference and what those two things are? Yeah, subsidies are uh, supports kind of like a safety net for a particular business that the government wants to make sure to support so that it doesn't fail. So uh, it's the government picking winners and losers, really. But, you know, like the most subsidies go to corn and soy last year, uh, typically in any given year, because a lot of our food system is based on corn and soy. And then bailouts are when are more for like if a disaster happens, like a natural disaster, or there's some sort of a market disruption, like another country imposes a tariff and all of a sudden half of our exports in the dairy industry go away. Well, they'll bail out the dairy farmers by just giving them checks to compensate for that lost market. Um, so bailouts are a little more like one off in reaction to a particular event typically, and a subsidy is more like a, a systematic program that is an ongoing program that, that farmers sign up for or don't, they're just enrolled. So you mentioned corn and soy, and I think, oh, those are plant foods, right? But, right. <laughs> but humans are not eating the majority, or, right? Or, right. Yeah, so uh, $9 billion went to corn growers last year. And about what, what was the soy? I think the soy was around seven billion, maybe. Don't quote me on that. I'd have to look it up. But forty-two um, percent in America, forty-two percent of corn is fed to livestock, and roughly seventy percent of soy is fed to livestock. So we are growing these crops for livestock. There was a um, Secretary of Agriculture, his name was Earl Butts. He was under Nixon. Have you guys ever heard that name, Earl mm -hmm. Butts? I think so, yeah. yeah. Okay, so this guy was a character. And I can send you the, the interview I have of him where after he had retired, or actually he didn't retire, he uh, stepped down in shame because he had told Jokes that were so totally offensive. They were both racist and misogynistic at the same time. And even in the Nixon administration, he couldn't stay in his position of power after telling these jokes. Um, I'll leave you to Google the Earl Butts joke that um, that got him to step down. Uh, but he was still lauded as like this luminary of ag policy. But he was of the school of like a, a Henry Kissinger. So he he very much saw food policy as a way of projecting American power around the world. And he talks about it that way. And when he talks about corn and soy, he's not talking about plant foods. He actually says Corn and American corn and soy are the way we we grow meat to send to the rest of the world and sell to the rest of the world and control the rest of the world. And he puts it together very clearly like he doesn't he's not hiding anything. I can send you the, the video where he talks about it. And it's it's kind of funny because he references the Ukraine being the the ostensibly the breadbasket of Russia. And he's he's so like American nationalistic. He's like, oh, yeah, but they only get 
uh, what did he say, like 1200 millimeters of rainfall a year, which is like 14 inches. And I'm like, mm, that math isn't working out. He's <laughs> like, he doesn't even do the math right. right. <laughs> That's just a little aside. But like this guy is, he's the one who, he set the tone at the top in the 70s and took the idea of making everything very industrialized, chemical, monocrop, and he just amplified that and pushed that policy forward. And the a lot of the programs we have today are coming from his tenure. And he was awful. He was awful. Just... Just well, worst. isn't that when the USDA was kind of was kind of created and came about was in the 70s? Is that am I completely way off base? Oh, uh, the USDA, you know, I don't know the year it was founded, but it 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 predates Earl Butts. Okay. All right. It just kind of changed everything. You know, everyone talks about, you know, in my days, it was mom and pop farms, you milk the cows yourselves and all that. Right. And 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 I just told him, well, you know, in the 70s, we had half as many people on this planet, you know? Yeah. There was three and a half billion on people on the planet when I was born in 76, and there's nearly eight now. Yeah. So, you know, yeah, maybe they did back then, but <laughs> we are in a completely different time now. Yeah. So that leads us to why. So what is your mission at AFA? What's the goal? Our goal is to shift subsidies and bailouts toward plant-based foods for human consumption. Got it. That's easy. That's simple, right? So what are the, (laughs) it's so easy. (laughs) Let's do it. (laughs) So, so your goal is to hire lobbyists. Um, What I I cannot imagine going in a lobbyist going in and say, we need a vegan world. The animal, you know, you're not going to send me in there because I'm going to talk about the animals. And I know that's, you're not going to get very far with that. So what are, what are the selling points? What would really, what sells this to politicians? Our opening gambit is to get a program in place that is a transition program to help animal farmers transition to growing crops. And we've recruited a handful of farmers to actually lobby with us uh, they tend to be dairy farmers because dairy farmers at this point are so desperate to try anything that they're like, yeah, I'll switch to whatever crop. Wow. Get me out of, get me out of dairy. And I can tell you some of the, the comments they've made about their own industry, which are fascinating because they don't, they don't see the dairy industry the way we do, but there's a lot of overlap there at the same time. We would love to hear some of the comments from them. Yeah, so so let me just answer the the first. I'll I'll give the bullet point. So we we're trying to pass this uh, program to help farmers transition. So we have multiple irons in the fire for that, and we're hoping that one of them go through. One is like more the official thing. One is like recommendations to USDA. And then one is kind of like slipping in language and a bill on the backside that hopefully nobody picks up on. I hope nobody's (laughs) listening to this from our opposition. (laughs) So those are the three ways of just this opening thing. It's like a $5 million program per year for any farmer who wants to just simply not only change how they're farming, which there's a ton of conservation programs through USDA to help farmers improve the way they're doing what they're doing. But when the AFA volunteers called up NRCS, the National Resources um, 
what is it, uh, conservation service under USDA and USDA FSA agents. And we, we called undercover saying, Hey, we have a friend who's a dairy farmer who wants to transition to farming hazelnuts as a means to improve his environmental footprint. Cause we have two farmers like that. And what programs do you have? They had nothing. They had nothing. So it kind of validated that our initial assessment of the existing programs were not sufficient. So that bolsters our, our case for creating this program. So once we have this program in, in place, that's just the opening move so that in the farm bill, which is coming up in 2022 or 2023, um, right now we're identifying all the low hanging fruit of like different programs in the 12 titles of this 600 page piece of legislation that can be shifted toward plants and away from animal ag. Um, as it'll give us a more standing to call for shifting the subsidies toward plant-based programs because there's a program in place for farmers who might be adversely affected by their subsidies being reduced. Um, so that's, that's the plan in DC. These two um, particular dairy, I'm sorry, did you have a question about that? No, I'm, no, go ahead. <laughs> so, um, these two particular dairy farmers are in Wisconsin. So it's interesting when you look at the dairy industry, there were like 600,000 dairy farms 20, 30 years ago. And now there's like less than 30,000 and they have far more cows per farm. Mm -hmm. So uh -huh. California is by far the biggest dairy state, but they don't have that many farms, but they'll have like 10,000 cows on a farm or wow. 20,000 cows on a farm, right. Oregon, even there's, um, what is it? Three Canyon, three mile Canyon. They've got like 70,000 milking cows across three properties. It's wow. they, they supply Tillamook mostly Tillamook cheese. So um, uh, there are a few, it's really consolidating under like these large agribusinesses. And then, uh, but Wisconsin has kind of maintained the small farm uh, they have a lot of small farms still, but they're going out of business at a rate of like 10% per year, although not last year because they received just, they were showered with money by the last administration. So okay. very few went out of business. But even so, these two farmers we're working with, they're saying it's not enough to transition and um, and they still want to transition. So uh, they're both on farms that they inherited from their their parents and their grandparents founded it. And it's kind of nauseating. Honestly, you talk to politicians and staffers and it's like, Oh, I'm a third generation XYZ farmer. I'm like, why does that give you more standing than me? I'm also an American citizen. Like I, my dad was in the coast guard. Is that like, does that impress you? I don't know. It just really frustrates me that whole like pandering, right. like I'm a good old, like I'm, I'm America and apple pie. Right. These other people who are trying right. to get us to like live sustainably aren't somehow. Right. Anyway, that's that's totally. an aside. But I, I adore these these dairy farmers we're working with. Like they're really cool guys and they're they're really um, open minded and kind of progressive. And one, his name is Dan. He's in, in Baraboo, Wisconsin, and he has a twelve hundred acre farm. He has six hundred milking cows, roughly. And he runs the farm with his brother and his father. And um, he wants to transition his land into a hazelnut 
um, like a food farm forest. So it would be um, using regenerative agriculture principles. It wouldn't be like monocropped hazelnuts. It would be a mix of tree crops. It would be a mix of um, uh, the the low brush. And and he wants to transition all 1,200 acres because he sees that the industrial monocropped um, alfalfa and corn production he's been pursuing has been depleting the soil and in, and he doesn't have a, he's creating too much manure from his dairy cows to fertilize the land so like they actually have these injectors that inject it deep into the soil which is killing off all the microbiotics and the the um the what ribosomes from the the all the good organic matter and, yes. and life they're just um killing with the, these methods and he doesn't want to do that anymore he read a book called restoration agriculture like 10 years ago and it just opened his eyes he's like what are we doing this is madness so he's huh. really gung-ho working with us and we have a letter on our website that he wrote to his representative mark pocan um and it's really moving, like it's saying all the things we're arguing for and he's adding to it. Look, I'd rather be paid to uh, transition to growing something that's environmentally sustainable than be paid to keep producing into a surplus market and having to get bailed out year after year. This is ridiculous. Right. And then the other farmer is Paul and, and he's over in Dodge. Wisconsin and he's got kids and if you look at the video on the our front page there's a short video those are his kids with these little calves and they're playing it's really sweet and nice of course those calves probably are dead now actually mm -hmm. because it's <laughs> enough time has passed well no they're probably being milked now actually since that video was filmed anyway He's like, hey, I'll tell you all the little things we're worried about. Like, he's like, Laura, I go to the grocery store and this is dairy country and half the shelves for dairy are plant-based. Like, I can get yeah, there. Yeah, I can get soy milk. I can get uh, oat milk. Everything's there. And he's like, they taste great on cereal. So I don't see why people would keep buying um, wow. This isn't exactly his words. I'm paraphrasing. Yes, so yes. If he listened, he'd be like, I might phrase it differently. But that was kind <laughs> yeah. of the gist of it. And he's like, the dirty little secret is that part of the reason, part of the revenue stream is that when the, the cattle um, are spent, which you and you guys all know, but when the dairy cows are spent at year four or five or six, depending they're turned into hamburger meat and that's the meat that's being served at like McDonald's. And if, if McDonald's goes to beyond Meat, and beyond Meat gets cheaper than, than the hamburger meat, then that revenue stream goes away and that's even more downward pressure on their business. So it's even more reason why they need to transition. So he'll, he'll talk about this stuff, frankly. And he's he's still of the mind that milk is more nutritious than, say, soy milk for humans. And, you know, I'm not going to get into an argument over that. Uh, but well, I mean, it's his livelihood at this point. I mean, I think it would be difficult to maybe even admit that or let yourself even think. Right. Like even get there, you know, because especially if like a third generation, you yeah. were raised to think this is good for you. Yeah. You know, as a child, you're out milking the cows. But 
but he he it's his hope that his kids aren't dairy farmers when yeah. he hands it over he wants it to be producing hazelnuts oh how Just did like you how did he find or so how did that work did 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 afa do you reach out to look to dairy farmers or do they how do they find you or how does that work we reach out to them so i found dan on reddit when i was first thinking about lobbying before I joined up with uh, my activism partner, Connie Spence, who's uh, founded AFA with me. I was doing like just this crowdsource funding to hire a lobbyist one off to do one of these pro to have a transition program. And I was on, I think I was on our collapse. This is where people are talking about, ecological overshoot like these are people who have recognized that like 70 percent of the biomass of terrestrial land mammals are livestock and like 27 percent are humans and three percent are wildlife right. and like everybody's already absorbed this and has already kind of internalized and gone through their emotional trauma realizing just how far into ecological overshoot we are with fossil fuel burning and with our livestock usage. So everybody's very like open about kind of lamenting where we are and kind of emotionally supporting each other. I think that's where I met Dan. So wow. we just kind of started chatting there because he was very tuned into that. Right. And he's a part of it. Wow. So. I asked him if I could keep talking with him. And so he's like, yeah, are you on Snapchat? So I have Snapchat on my phone. And the only person I talk to on there is Dan. So mm -hmm. I'll like on occasion, send him information about his representative, like something he said, or, or ask him if he's using this new tool from USDA. So that was that. And then we also have a volunteer. Her name's Barb and she's, She's amazing. We call her the farm farmer whisperer. <laughs> the, she just go. I'll, I'll say, look, we need to find a farm in Shelly Pingree's district because Shelly Pingree is in the house on the ag committee and she's pretty much the the kingmaker there. Whenever you talk to anybody about ag policy, they ask, what does Pingree think about this? So okay, like, so we need her I'm on sorry. our side. So, so she you, looked for farmers there, for example. So you identify the politics. So it's almost like you identify the politician that is like kind of like the difference maker. Look at where they are and then and then reach out to farmers there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's smart. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> I think that's a pretty good strategy, right? OK, so so what I'm confused about is, is this is someone that's um, very adamant pro dairy farming or the opposite they're more on on environmental friendly and and uh options aside from dairy who you mean the farmer or the volunteer who's reaching out to them the the legislature the oh yeah i mean it's gonna it varies so it, it's interesting like what you mentioned earlier selena about progressives versus republicans uh, you would think that progressives might be a little more open to hearing the argument for the connection between animal agriculture and the environment and wanting to take action on that. But even they, they're still in the hidden ideology and they see all farming as, as wholesome good. And so when we're even targeting like, Hey, we're helping midsize and small farmers to give them options 
They don't share our view initially that that's like an opportunity for the farmer. In fact, what happens is, um, well, some of them see it as a threat against farmers, like Tammy Baldwin, for example, who's always, she's a senator out of Wisconsin. She's always introducing the Dairy Pride Act. So she's identifying vegan environmentalists as kind of the enemy. So she would be tough to petition, but she's super pro- progressive. Pocan's more open to our, our, lang- our um, arguments because we have a farmer in his district. So he's like, that turns the knob for him. He's super progressive too. Pingree, when we didn't have a, a farmer in her district, her staffers were like, okay, yeah, yeah, we agree with everything you're saying, but until a farmer in our district is saying that we need to do this, we like, we're, we're totally in alignment, but we're not going to, you're, you're not going to make us, we're not going to jump to action because of that. So that's why we had to find a farmer. Republicans, I think there is an argument to be made that just in terms of taxpayer justice, they in generally generally they oppose subsidies and bailouts anyway because they just want the free market to run and they would like for your consumer votes to actually go through so there are arguments to be made with both they're just different arguments but you're exactly right they're all very steeped in in uh not wanting to identify any American farmers as the problem. So it's really hard to say, oh, then let's pursue the solution if you're not willing to acknowledge the problem. The second layer of that is they are all, almost all of them, I would say, are either in bed with or are terrified of what's called the barnyard, which is the animal ag lobby. There are roughly 200 lobbyists employed by the broader coalition of animal ag interests from the Cattlemen's Association to the the poultry group, to the egg group, to the dairy farmers. And anything we we propose for them to want to take action, they need to see it as at least neutral in the eyes of the animal ag coalition. If they see it as raising a red flag that would get them on the bad side of the cattlemen's association, they won't even consider it. This is progressives and obviously Republicans. Wow. Wow. And even, even, even the organizations that were like-minded and we're, we're in kind of a coat, we're working together in DC. They're terrified of the barnyard too. Wow. I'm just naive. I'm like, I'm going to go in with the truth. (laughs) (laughs) You mentioned hazelnut. What are some of the other crops that are, that you would suggest to farmers to transition to? Yes. I love that question. We just uh, identified the top 19 crops that the plant-based food industry has projected they're going to need going forward to scale. Mm -hmm. Um, One of the areas we've identified as needing work from a federal policy perspective is growing the plant-based food supply chain because it's, it's really not where it needs to be. Corn and soy, if you grow corn and soy, you can just take your product to your curb and it'll get picked up or you take it down to a processor that's just a few miles down the road and it'll get processed and you can sell it. 
Not so for mung beans or fava beans. So like mung beans, fava beans, quinoa, potatoes. I could pull up the list in a, um, on my computer, but those are, are some that aren't as, uh, don't have as robust a distribution network. So when people transition to them, that distribution network needs to be in place. So mm-hmm. th- those are some of the things that we're identifying in the next farm bill that we want government programs to support um, boosting up those supply networks so that if say one of our dairy farmers decides to transition to something like hazelnuts, they'll, they'll not only get the same subsidy support that corn and soy gets like in terms of protections, if there's like, a yield that's less than they expect or prices drop, but they'll also get a, be able to sell into a supply chain that's robust and um, is at a scale where they're not going to have to make their own market. The the top ones are like Miyoko identified Miyoko's um, Skinner, Shinner of Miyoko's creamery. She identified fava beans as being the next crop that she would really like to have a lot of access to. And then a lot of um, farmer, a lot of plant-based foods are based on mung bean, like the just egg. And then there's lentils, all the, all the pulses are are pretty critical. And then a lot of nut crops. Wow. Can you just make sure Miyoko gets those beans, please? Because um, (laughs) (laughs) I'm a little obsessed with everything that they make. Yeah, yeah. One thing I've 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 heard interviews with Connie as well, and one thing that I've heard her say over and over again is basically, we're paying for subsidies for methane. It's not necessarily. Have you heard that? Have you heard her say that? Oh yeah, and and we just published a whole series on our website about the subsidies that went for pretty much methane production, and we measured it at between eight hundred dollars per ton to twenty six hundred dollars per ton. Yeah, so I mean, is what we paid out to farmers to pretty much produce methane. Yeah, wow. because that's what these you you mentioned thirty thousand cows like on a farm <laughs> like yeah. that's. I mean, so, I mean, I think that language is so powerful talking about how, you know, these subsidies, this is what you're producing and this is what's, you know, this is what's killing us. Right. Right. Interesting. I had never heard that before. Yeah. Kind of a way to, you know, language is so important. Right. Um, How, how has COVID affected, I I know with like other, you know, we're all about the animal rights. Well, of course, environmental where we were, you know, but a lot of the um, COVID kind of helped in some way. with writing bills because of public health and, you know, improving, like, for instance, with fur farms mm-hmm. and talking about, um, right. The, you know, has there, is there any, has, has COVID helped or hindered your mission at all? Or is there, it's just not relevant. I think among like the politicians who are already keyed into the effect of animal agriculture in general, um, it only added to their reasons for uh, pushing for laws like Cory Booker, Adam Schiff, all the the, the vegan <laughs> politicians. You'll see them talk about pandemics as being linked to animal ag, okay. um, but I haven't seen a lot of 
politicians picking up on that thread and going, hey, if we stop rearing so many animals, we'll be brewing fewer viruses and bacteria and superbugs. Um, I haven't seen a lot of that. In terms of legislation, um, the main thing I've noticed is because of COVID, it was an excuse to tap into the slush fund, which is roughly $30 billion a year, yeah. the Commodity Credit Corporation under USDA. The administration is allowed to tap into that slush fund and give it to whoever they want. And they just dropped it onto dairy farmers in the Midwest. Something like 90% of the bailout payments from the CCC, the Commodity Credit Corporation, went to districts that are strong red districts and only 10% went to blue districts. It's, it was hyper-partisan. The thing that gets me about it is like, nobody's talking about that, right? But in, I don't know, it might've been 2010, 2000, mm, 2012, maybe, um, Obama tapped into the Commodity Credit Corporation. Uh, he took like $350 million and he sent it to um, I think cotton and some other farm. I forget what the products were, but it was kind of in the Southeast. It's 350 million. Wow. Okay. Compare that to the 20, 23 billion tapped into by Trump. Wow. Um, he, he sent it to some farmers and there was such a, a there was so much blowback about him, like, it was political, like he was trying to buy votes, that they actually passed legislation limiting the powers that the Secretary of Agriculture could could exercise in tapping that slush fund. Well, <laughs> Congress in 2017, oh, they just let that those restrictions expire. And immediately after Trump's like, here, let me just give you money. Let me give you that money. It was because that those protections they put on the other party wow. fired. And then they're like, okay, laws for you, regulations for you, but none for me. And crazy. Um, yeah, it was really um, hypocritical in my right. opinion. Right. Wow. Um, not that I'm, I'm pro one party or another, but um, I don't know. I just thought I'd share that story. Oh, it's something, I mean, yeah, that's ridiculous. <laughs> so how many lobbyists does AFA have now at this point? We have one. Okay. We have one right now, and uh, we are looking for our second lobbyist, who we intend to hire in about two to three months. Okay. Cool. The first question, whenever I mention AFA to friends, to other vegans, I say, "This is what we need to do. Like, mm -hmm. this, look at, please look at this." Mm -hmm. I, I, you know, I'm all for the street activism and right. you know, reaching out to people, but. I, I do kind of feel like we're talking, <laughs> we're just going to be talking until our head falls off. Right, right. <laughs> you know, the first question they ask me every time is, are the lobbyists vegan? And I'm sure you get that question. Do you get that question often? Or, um, sometimes. I mean, sometimes. Not too often. Yeah. It, to me, it doesn't matter. I mean, personally, I, right. it doesn't matter to me if they're vegan. I mean, of course, I want them, I want everybody to be vegan. Right. But I would, I, I would be more concerned with their they're doing their job their connections <laughs> right. how many connections do they have i don't know that's yeah well our first our first lobbyist was not so we we had one lobbyist his name was billy delancey um and now we have another 
he moved on and we decided that it was time for us to find someone who, who had more connections in the circles we needed. And that was Riley O'Connor. So we hired him. Billy wasn't vegan when we started, but he, he went vegan while working with me, um, which was cool. So he would would ask me questions like, can I eat clams? (laughs) (laughs) So I would give, I would tell him what my opinion was on any given issue. Um, Riley is very sympathetic to plant-based, but I don't probe him too much about anything. Like my mission isn't to turn him vegan. Exactly. I want him to be able to represent, I want him to understand what we care about and be able to translate that into what policies we can push for and how to language that to get them passed. Uh, Like I I look at him as like, I look at my family members. I, I don't try to do activism on my family members because it's just a losing game. And, and well, it's not necessarily a losing game. It's, the stakes feel very high and when you aren't successful, it's devastating. And so I would rather just be an example, live, live as an example and law of attraction stuff. And if I they totally pick up on it, great. I'd re- I'm probably more effective at converting a hundred people on the street than I am converting like my brother. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Aren't we all? Yeah. <laughs> sure. Um, so, so, so hiring another one, what's, how many, what's the number of lobbyists that you would say would, that you could really be effective? 10. 10. Uh, we're, we're gunning for 10 going into the next farm bill. So we want to uh-huh. have five by the end of this year, but even if we have two or three, we're going to be very effective at moving some things in the farm bill. And the reason is because like I was saying before, there's all this low hanging fruit as you go through it. I know that we're on audio, but like you see my whiteboard there. Mm-hmm. That's the matrix of the farm bill with a few topic areas, mainly um, nutrition and alternative meats and um, the other one being environment. And you look through program by program and there's all these things where you could add just a few words to like include more more of the plant-based food crops in a program that already exists. You don't even have to deny anybody anything else. You could say, Hey, let's, let's increase the funding for this program and include mung beans and lentils and fava beans. Right. Right. And like that would help. Right. It seems like this is like, if we had two to three lobbyists pushing these what I'm calling are opportunities for intervention and we even hit a few of them it would have meaningful change but what we're doing is like I I realize AFA isn't big enough to go up against 200 lobbyists but there are a lot of organizations working towards similar ends in DC and they all rightfully have said okay we're going to pick this one thing and we're going to go for that one thing and be successful at it And then this other organization is doing this one thing. So right now we're spending this next month to two months um, identifying what I'm calling these OFIs, opportunities for intervention in the farm bill. And I I think we could have like 100 or 200 that are like potential. And then we're going to offer them to our... Uh, like-minded organizations, like we'll pick the ones that we want our AFA lobbyists to focus on, which we think are in our wheelhouse. 
But there's a whole lot of others where we're just going to go to these other organizations and say, here, you will you join our coalition? And here's this menu of opportunities for intervention. And if there are any that align with what you're already doing with what your mission is, we will work with you to make it happen. And then if we have like this whole constellation of things we're pushing for, where it's like we're incrementally moving them over to plant based from animal ag, uh, I think we're going to be tremendously effective. And so it's not just five lobbyists from AFA, it's the three lobbyists from, I don't want to mention the other organizations right, that's okay. we're talking yeah. to because, you know, I want them to sign up formally, but, yes. um, you know, three from these guys, two from those guys, right. four from those guys, right. and it's added to their agenda. I think mm-hmm. we can really be effective and the farm bills, everything. This is, this is almost all of the legislation that, that describes how the USDA funds farming operations. It describes how USDA offers supports for conservation measures. It it describes how USDA helps um, keep farms from failing when there's like a hurricane. It's everything. Right. Wow. Awesome. Well, it'd be nice to have, you know, these other these other branches, you know, then it's not all on your dime, right? <laughs> yeah. But it got, yeah. it's money. It's money. I keep thinking about it though. I hear all that. You know, there's so much money, you know, we, we can, as, as humans, we can put our money. It just seems like a great investment because right. I don't know. I just, I don't know. <laughs> do you, do you know what the return on investment is? Say, say you're a corporation and you have the notion to lobby in DC. So you put your, agent in DC and you start putting money into it and you you're working on it for like two, three, four years. And every time you lobby, you're like getting these perks. So you put more and more money in right now you have a lobbying team in DC. When you get to that scale, what do you think the return on investment is for every dollar they put in? How much money do they get back in terms of, perks and actual direct payments. Oh my gosh. Tax breaks, reduced oh regulation. I don't know. I'm going to go $10. Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I, yeah. I have no That's idea. High. I think that seems high to me, but <laughs> what? 1,000 to 2,000. Oh, really? I thought that yeah. was pretty high. <laughs> wow. 1,000 to 2,000. A lot of my things you spend money on, you don't get anything back. And so, yeah, yeah, yeah I'm not surprised at all. That's, that's really cool. So wow. how can we, or how can our listeners get involved? What can we do? What can they do? So go to, well, first of all, I would encourage you to follow us and and share our contact on social media because it's really helpful when we're talking to like big investors that we have reach. So um, Ag Fairness Alliance is our typical handle like on Instagram and Facebook and Ag Fairness on Twitter. Um, And then you can go to our website, which is agriculturefairnessalliance.org and sign up as a monthly member um, for $10 a month, but even as little as a dollar a month helps. And we will, as we're getting closer to the farm bill, we're going to have more and more actions. So people who, even if they sign up for a buck a month, you'll be getting, well, we send out like a roughly once a a month, we send out, you guys know, (laughs) um, information on what we've been doing, but 
as we get closer to the farm bill, we'll probably have some more grassroots efforts where we want people to write to their congressmen. So we'll be asking to do that. If you have a spare 10 hours a week and uh, you like rolling up your sleeve and reading about government programs where you can help us identify opportunities for um, intervention, you can volunteer with us. So you just go to our website and under get involved, there's a volunteer link and just apply for whichever um, role is close to what you would want to do. It doesn't have to be an exact match. Um, we'll just have a one-on-one -on -one and we'll talk about where you can fit in. So that's volunteering. Um, yeah. So donate, but $10 a month, that's the big one because, uh, and we also have a program called the champions club where people can sign up for $200 a month. And once we get 50 of those, we'll, we will hire one more lobbyist through them. Um, and then lastly, if you know any plant-based food companies who want to be corporate sponsors, just email me at Laura at agriculturefairnessalliance.org and, and talk to me and, and, um, Introduce me to that plant-based food company. I'm not talking about like, oh, I love BioLife. Why don't you ask them to be a sponsor? No, I mean, I... like if you know the yes. people who, <laughs> who run the plant-based food company and you can like be a connector for us yeah. because we reach out to those guys all the time. Right? Yeah, we can, you can actually facilitate. Um, right. Uh, yeah. Yes. Gotcha. I gotcha. Yeah. Hey, Bob, so we... meet Laura. <laughs> right, right. And Do you have any corporate can... sponsors that you can talk about? We do. Let point. me plug them. So yeah, let's plug them. Our, one is our first cor corporate sponsor was Healthy Planet Foods. Okay. Or Hungry, Hungry Planet Foods. I'm sorry. Okay. Sorry, Jody. Um, and I've already ordered, like I mass order their meats and we put them in the freezer and then we nice. eat them for the next two months, two, three months. And then I order again. Um, it's really good. And it's, it, I like them because it's like, mock meats that are really tasty but they're also on the healthier end of the mock meats so awesome. okay. they really focus on making them healthy so okay. i like um hungry planet foods cool and then the other one is all y'all's jerky so they're based out of oh, in texas fun. and they make um really delicious jerkies so um yeah all y'all's jerky yeah i love plant-based jerky mm -hmm. i love it it's delicious and Brett, the founder's awesome. So, okay. um, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, we'll give them a shout out too on totally. our, on our, on our veg Insta, uh, yep, on our, on our page. And also we'll add any links, um, mm -hmm. that you want us to on the bottom of this, the page notes, the show's notes. Okay. Um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. I knew this would be fun. Yeah. I, told, I knew we would be filled with hope after right. we talked with you. Right. I knew it. <laughs> Good. Good, good. I'm glad. Yeah, is there yeah, anything I, else you want to add? I just, I've watched our country over the past, um, you know, decades, people being convinced that the government can't do anything right. And the government is, you know, they're the bad guy. And somehow, like, corporations are our friend. And as a result, we've sold our democratically elected government out to the highest bidder by allowing free-for-all lobbying. Um, the reason why we're doing this is because it is the way the system works. It's not that I like that this is the way the system works, 
Lobbying, on the other hand, is a First Amendment protected right. Like you, you are allowed to petition the government for grievances and there's nothing saying you can't hire somebody to make your case for you. So it's not going away. Um, I would just encourage people to get involved politically, run for office, local, state, even run for rep. If you're in a district where um, people aren't really engaged. Heck, some people get elected to the House of Representatives and you're like, how did that happen? It's because people aren't engaged. We need to take our democracy back. And you know what? We have a great system, but it requires that all citizens get engaged and, and I mean, at the very least vote and be informed when you vote. Don't just like throw darts at the, at the ballot. Right. But, you know, if you, if, Anybody in our movement is thinking of running for office or even volunteering on a campaign. If you volunteer on a campaign, even for somebody who's not like a vegan activist, but you agree with 90% of their, their issues. If you volunteer on their campaign, guess what? You're giving people like me an into that office because you could become a staffer. <clears throat> and if you're a trusted advisor in a political office, you're almost more powerful than the, the person who's holding the office. That's, that's so a good point. Yeah. Help, help people run and they don't have to be totally aligned with you. Please get rid of purity tests. Well, that's impossible. <laughs> well, right. Right. Because just, we really expect is. so much. <laughs> we expect so much. It's impossible. So that's, uh, that's a good, very good yeah. point. So get active. All right, Laura, I'm running for office then. <laughs> Great. Yeah, I mean, think about all your, your vegan activism you do to the random person on the street. Let's just direct that to the people are, who are holding office and holding power. Right. They're, they have their hands on the lovers of power. Let's right. convince them. Right. That's all yeah. we're doing. You know, I always thought for so long that it was like, each individual and it was our the choices that are made that we make individually that will change the world which i still believe but i think talking with selena really it was just like you know we need to shoot higher we really do and that's why what you're doing is so important we place a lot of burden on individuals yeah when the system it's just we're all there's almost so so much control we have yeah there's so much so so much control i mean i think don't get me wrong i will you know i spend as much time as i can talking to anybody about going vegan but i think sure putting our efforts into you know things like supporting afa right it's going to give us multiply bang for our buck absolutely and like i just you can't beat them so let's join them right yeah yeah, exactly. And I mean, the work you're doing with spreading the word here on the podcast and the, is it an annual veg fest you run? Yes. When is that going to be? <laughs> uh, well, we're, we're, it's in the works. It's in the works. We're, right, well, we're, we're hopeful. We're hopeful. <laughs> that's my word of the year. We're hopeful. We're really hoping well, we can do something this year. And, and uh, we're in the kitchen. We're in the kitchen. Stir in, okay. stir in the bowl a little bit. <laughs> well, whenever you have it, I will try to get there because I, I pop up there every few months anyway. So cool. um, I will definitely arrange my travel to coincide with your veg fest. Awesome. Well, you have a table for sure. We want, yeah. we want people to hear about right. 
Cool. If, yeah. If, if you want to do that. Yeah. <laughs> so. I would love to. I would love awesome. to. Okay. All right. Well, thank, thank you so you. much, thank Laura. You, Laura. It was great to see you. And, and uh, we'll talk with you soon. Thank you for listening to this month's episode of the Bellingham Veg Fest show. If there are topics that you'd love to hear more about, please reach out. You can find us at bellinghamvegfest.org and be sure to follow Bellingham Veg Fest on Instagram and Facebook.